Good morning, everybody. The scripture that I want to look at this morning is found in Jeremiah, <clears throat> and we're going to cover the entire first nine chapters. <laughs> there will at least be selections from um, the first nine chapters. Jeremiah, um, in my opinion, Generally, Isaiah is considered maybe the greatest of what are called the major prophets, and surely Isaiah is um, an outstanding book. Lots of quotes from Isaiah. But I think if Jeremiah isn't tied um, with Isaiah, this book is a very close second. We'll learn a bit about Jeremiah. When people, when we talk about the book of Jeremiah, a lot of times people, I don't mean out of disrespect or disregard for it, but they'll roll their eyes. It's a dark, it seems, dark, gloomy, um, troubled kind of book. It's written in the worst times of Israel. It's written as the Assyrian kingdom, which had dominated Israel and wreaked havoc with them, was beginning to decline, which would be good news, except that it was declining because the Babylonian kingdom, much stronger and greater and for the, a further spread of property, real estate, the Babylonians made the Assyrians, in a sense, look like Sunday school kids. And God was, through Jeremiah, prophesying, and, and I'd use this word about God. It's a human term that he probably doesn't experience, but it means something to us. God's desperately trying to plead with Israel before utter doom and destruction occurs, which was the complete destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar carried off everyone that was that amounted to anything, ruined the land, flattened Jerusalem, tore the wall down, burnt the temple down, burnt all the palaces down, and carried the people off for a captivity that Jeremiah said will be 70 years. You'll be there 70 years. Now, we know they didn't pay attention to him, uh, which is part of the reason they were in the trouble they were in. But the, the scriptures that I want to select here tell us three things. God's call, which tells us his method of reaching the human race, 
And then there's the cause of the mess that Israel and all humans are in. And then there's the cure. And there's selections from these first nine chapters that I want to look at under those thoughts. In chapter 1, and I, this is really not, I'm not going to cover this much, but I think it's interesting in the very first verse, it call, speaks of the words of Jeremiah and the words of the Lord. They're one and the same. Yes, they're Jeremiah's words, but they're the Lord's words. And this is God's method of giving us Scripture. Jesus is the living word, and when Jesus came here to earth, we call that the incarnation. He clothed himself with humanity, and he was fully God and fully man. The written word reflects that same union. It's the word of God, but it's the word of men. Meaning, the word of God is in the mouths of his prophets and his apostles, elevated to where it's without error, yet... Each book, each prophet retains his human personality, language patterns, temperament, and the scriptures then are both the words of Jeremiah or Isaiah, Moses. So that when we speak often, we will say, the Bible says, or we'll say James said. And sometimes people will quarrel with that. But Jesus even used that. He said often, my father said, the scriptures say. Yet he said, Moses spoke of me. Well, it was the word of the Lord, but it was also Moses. This is how God works with fallen, sinful humans to reach out to a fallen, sinful race and call us back to God. So Jeremiah, in the first chapter, receives his call. Verse 4, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Now that is not speaking of cleansing from inherited depravity, which is one of the frequent uses for the word sanctification or sanctify. This means I set you apart. I ordained you. The plan was before you were born, I knew you. And I planned that you would be a prophet to the nations. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. It's believed from the time span given even in the earlier parts of chapter 1 here 
that Jeremiah was probably beginning his preaching ministry in around 630 B.C. And it's believed that he probably lived as long as 80 years. And there's strong Jewish tradition that after the bulk of his ministry, preaching to the people of Israel, after Nebuchadnezzar came, defeated Israel, destroyed it, carried off most of the people to Babylon. And by the way, to help you connect, there were two times when Nebuchadnezzar carried people off. And among them were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know about them from the book of Daniel. There's, and Jeremiah wrote letters to the people in Babylon telling them you're going to be there 70 years. Quit praying that you're going to get out of it. Quit planning that you're going to come back. You aren't. God has said it's going to be 70 years. And another little detail. It goes to what we think was an obscure law that Israel disregarded. God just said, I want you to give the land a Sabbath. Every seventh year, don't plant I'll make so much grow in the sixth year that you'll have enough food to cover the seventh and you'll have also enough food and seed to plant for the eighth. So they got a year's vacation. They got a whole year off every seventh year. I'd be for it. They weren't greed. They disregarded it. And God, we think God tarries long here. When's he going to get rid of what's going on in Washington? Let me not discourage you. But God sat quietly, didn't say a whole lot, and he watched 490 years roll by of the Israelites not giving the land that seventh year Sabbath. He didn't say much. So sometimes God doesn't move real quickly. And he let it build up until there were 70 of those seventh year Sabbaths that they'd ignored. And he didn't say much. But then he said, now, we're going to carry you off to Babylon because of all the wickedness you've done that we'll read here in a moment. But in addition, by the way, it's been 490 years you've been disobeying me and you didn't give the land a seventh year. We're gonna, and you, now you owe 70 years. We're going to just get that all once. You're not coming back till 70 years. Many of you carried off at whatever age. You're not coming back. Maybe some of the very, very young will, but this is how long it's going to be. Jeremiah quickly was treated horribly. We'll, we see this in these passages. He was imprisoned. He was threatened with death. He was accused of being a traitor. He, he was the off-scouring of the earth. 
after the Babylonian captivity, which he was not carried off, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, gave special word, protect him. Don't bring him back here to Babylon captivity. Give him freedom to do what he wants. He can come to Babylon if he wants. If he doesn't, he can stay there. But he's free. Give him some food and a little bit of money, and he's free. He opted to stay in Israel with the remnant that was left. That group rose up and assassinated the, the governor that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had set over Palestine and over Israel. And then they all fled to Egypt and they forced Jeremiah to go with them. So he ends up in Egypt in the last of his days. There he's prophesying and he's preaching to the exiled Israelites saying, you don't like it here in Egypt? <laughs> and he still rubbed them the wrong way. You don't like it here? Well, it's because you wouldn't listen to God. Strong Jewish tradition, but it's not in the scripture necessarily, but strong Jewish tradition is that finally the exiled Israelites in Egypt grew weary enough of Jeremiah's preaching that reproached them that they stoned him to death. And he ended his life then in Egypt. I don't know for sure, but it's estimated that he preached at least 50 years and virtually no one ever listened to him. Anytime I get discouraged, seriously, I remember, and we should, I remember Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached half a century at least. The only guy I know that listened to him was his secretary, <laughs> Baruch, who wrote down everything he said. That's it. The call here, then, he said, I'm young. I can't do it. The Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. That's really the commission of any preacher, any missionary, anyone called into ministry to God. You go where I tell you to go. And you say what I tell you to say. That's it. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Now, 9. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdom to root out and to pull down to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. We have to remember that last line. Everything previously sounds grim about Jeremiah's ministry. Yes, pull down, destroy, tear a pluck up, wreck stuff. But he said, plant and build is part of the ministry too. So don't shy away from reading the book of Jeremiah. It's not all bad. 17 of verse of chapter 1. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before 
them. Other versions say, don't be confused or confounded, or I'll confound you in front of them. God's hand did seem pretty rough on Jeremiah. He didn't have a lot of wiggle room. God didn't leave him much. And then in 18, I've made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Finally, on this call, who did God call? He called somebody who it's estimated he started preaching in his late teens or very early 20s. Preached till the end of his life, maybe 80 years. In addition to that, it seems from the warnings that God gave Jeremiah that as a person, he was fearful. He considered himself too young to do anything. And he must have been somewhat um, tending to be intimidated because God told him, don't let them intimidate you. Don't be afraid of the looks on their faces. You preach, he said, and if you're afraid of the looks on their faces, I'll make you afraid in front of them. Man, life. So his assignment, his call was a tough one. But God said, even though you don't have it in you, I'll give you the strength and the grace and the power to do it. Nothing God calls any of us to do. Does he ever fail to give me what I need to do it? Now, what's the cause of all that's going on in Israel? If you look at the second chapter, starting with the 13th verse, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What? What a statement. And what a stark difference. God is the fountain of living waters, artesian well, springs of water, all we need. And we've abandoned that, he said. And we've dug holes in the ground and tried to line them with stones so we can fill it with still water that gets stagnant. And if it's sitting there long enough, it gets algae in it. And it stinks. Plus, you can't build it waterproof and it drains out. What? A contrast to walking with God, trusting God, obeying God, living for God, trusting Him with all of our hearts, and relying on our own judgment, our own strength. It's pathetic beyond that. But He's not done. In Still in chapter 2, 17, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? 19, your own wickedness will correct you 
and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. This is especially appropriate today. We see it in our country. We are grieved. I'm grateful that today I'm not preaching to a bunch of people that are participating in what's going on in our culture today. We're grieved over it. We're troubled over it. We're frustrated about it. We don't know what to do. We pray. We feel helpless. And really there isn't anything we can do but pray. But God can do whenever he wants to, he will. I won't get too far off the subject, but, you know, and I don't know this person, maybe some of you do, but I read a letter to the editor yesterday quoting Edmund Burke, English philosopher in the 18th century, who made the famous statement, all, all evil needs to triumph is for good men to do nothing. The writer of this letter yesterday pointed out all that's going on with the library and all that and cited ministers in the community that were harsh and unloving and uncompassionate um, and, you know, just rats and quoted Burke flipping it completely upside down that the good people of the community need to not continue to do nothing. They need to rise up and do something about the evil. And what's the evil? The preachers and the Christians and the people that don't want scum. Ever read Romans and a hundred other places? They will call good evil and evil good. We're in that day. We're in very similar times to what Jeremiah faced. That's why this book's so relevant to us. In chapter 5, still looking at why they're in the mess they're in, chapter 5, verse verses 30 and 31. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, meaning not God's power, but their own ways. And my people love to have it so. Then this last phrase, but what will you do in the end? We are in a day, and I know it sounds, it can sound, I pray it doesn't, but it can sound, you know, the, there's only 10 churches and left in the land, we're one of them, the rest are hopeless cases. But unfortunately, this is a true description of the American evangelical church. Small e. Prophets prophesy falsely, 
they rule in their own power. They plan their own agendas. It's not God's agenda. It's their agenda. It's build how to build a church. Nobody, no human builds a church, for goodness sakes. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. He builds it. I can't build it. You know, the thing is, though, human pastors can't build a church, but they can wreck one. They can tear them down by prophesying falsely. If you'll tithe, God will double your business. If you believe the Lord, you'll never be sick. Doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how wicked we are. You're a person of faith. What does that even mean anymore? So we sit by the billions in sanctuaries across the land and hear men's philosophies and men's ideas. And the scripture is basically ignored. And the worst thing he says, and my people love to have it like that. We like it. But what will we do in the end? Six, chapter six, the fourteenth verse. Part of the cause of our country's demise, and as well as Israel's. Everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor, what a, what a description here, nor did they know how to blush. We've lost the ability to even blush at the rot and the putrid scum that's going on in our culture. We don't even know how to be ashamed anymore. In the 8th chapter. Notice first of all. 8 and 9. How can you say we are wise. And the law of the Lord is with us. This is what people were saying. Jeremiah. Why not preach positive things? Why not be encouraging? You're, you're just blowing smoke here. We're fine. God's with us. We have the law of God. We have the Bible. How can you say we're wise and the law of the Lord's with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe works falsehood. Other versions say that the the lying pen of the scribes have turned it, the law of the Lord, into a lie. What does that mean? The scribes were the teachers. They were largely the ones who were Bible commentators. Okay? They were the ones who put out commentaries. 
explained what's the scripture. They were the ones that if they, I don't know if they had them in those days, but the Bible bookstores, they were the ones that ground, you know, they were grinding out uh, books about two a week. I won't get off on all that, but about 90% of the religious books that come out are not worth the paper they're written on. I wouldn't even take the time to read the cover of it and find out who wrote it. It's just palaver. And this is exactly what he's saying. He's saying the commentators of the scriptures turn it upside down and use it to promote falsehoods, false doctrines, false teachings. And they're supposed to be the commentators. 820 is one of the most pungent, haunting statements I think you can find not only in the book of Jeremiah, but in the Bible, period. Verse 20. After, again, laying out all that they've been doing, Jeremiah then makes this statement. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we're not saved. What does that mean? That speaks to the neglect of opportunity. When the Holy Spirit talks to us, calls us, draws us, reveals needs, prompts us, and we let it slide. It's a different kind of rejection of God's word. It's not quite so fierce. It's not quite hostile. It's not raging against God's word. It's just, I'll get to it later. I know, Lord, you've been talking to me about reading my Bible, praying each day, trusting you about this, giving this to you and leaving it with you. You're talking to me about this or that in my soul. But I'm just neglecting it. Hebrew says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word for neglect there in Hebrews is simply let slip through your fingers. Again, it's not hostile reaction to God. It's just I have other things. It's like Jesus said in the parable of the soils and the seed falling on it. Fell among thorns. The thorns choked, it says, and the word there is choked to death. The seed. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the busyness of life, choked the word to death and it profited nothing. What are we doing with our lives? What are we spending our attention on, our energies on, our goals on? What are they? Are they gods? Let's move to 
the cure in this same spread of chapters. What's the answer? Sometimes the gloom and doom and judgment of Jeremiah seems so overwhelming that we can miss the little gleaming diamonds that are still there of hope. One commentator said, he was afraid to say it, but he said, actually, if we read it a different way, read Jeremiah, and we look for those half-buried diamonds, this is a book of hope that in the dire mess that they're in, there's still hope because there's still a God. And if we turn to God, He saves. Back in chapter 3, verses 12, and then 22. But here's verse 12. We can read 13 also. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain, remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. This seems easy, but how hard it is. How frequently do we sidestep this? He said, acknowledge your transgressions. It's not what somebody did you when you were three and it's marked you for the rest of your days. And I know there's abuse. I know that there's things that happen in lives that affect us. But God's greater than all those. Far greater than all that. So he said, acknowledge your transgressions. What you did on purpose. Acknowledge that you've transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree that worshipped all kinds of false gods. And you've not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. In the end, we know what God whispers to our heart. We know how he tugs at our heart. We know how he checks us and he warns us and he directs us. And he says, no, hey, don't do that. That's his voice. How sometimes still it seems, that still small voice, but it's always discernible. We can hear it. And what in, that, what in the final analysis are we doing? I'm rejecting the voice of the Lord. I don't do it. In verse 22 of the same chapter, Here's a simple cure. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. I'm here to tell you this. I don't even know what I'm going to say, whether for sure. 
I've ever met anybody that's a true Bible-defined reprobate. I think I've met two in my whole life. And I'm not sure about that. Though there was a hardness there as I would pastor them and try to talk to them that seemed oddly impenetrable. Still remember talking to one man and I don't know how to describe it. It was the last time I ever talked to him before he went out into eternity. And I sensed such a hardness and a hostility, not necessarily to me, but just unreachableness. I'd, I'd never felt that. And I did something that I didn't even feel guilty for. I, never even, I didn't even pray with him. I visited with him, and I, rem I didn't even pray with him. I always prayed with people, you know, especially if they're on death's door. I don't mean to say that if I do pray with you, I think you're on death's door. <laughs> but I, I sensed such a resistance to God that it was just like, well, I will tell you. I don't have time to go to it, but it's in these same nine chapters. Twice, God told Jeremiah, he said, don't pray for these people. I won't hear you. That's how bad they'd become. But, having said that, I don't know if I've ever met anybody that's a reprobate, which means I don't care what we've gotten into. I don't care how far away we are from God. He still sees us. And Isaiah said, is the Lord's arm shortened? That he can't save? No. His reach is to wherever you and I are. Be encouraged then, even if we're deeply revolted against God. Maybe secretly, but just drifted away far. There's always hope, because he said here, God said, I'm merciful. There's an old hymn. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. I, I love that phrase. There's mercy with the Lord. Still, in 6, in this passage of Scripture, the 6th chapter, the 16th verse, Thus says the Lord, Here's the cure. Stand in the ways and see or look and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Notice we've already covered this, but the very next verse says, but you said, no, we won't walk in it. Okay, there's the cause. But the cure is, look for the old ways. You know something? I know that God talks to us. One of, the, one of the things that God uses tremendously is nostalgia. It's that we've known better days. We can remember when we were 
more tender-hearted. And maybe when we were walking with God. And God is a master at bringing that back to us. And he'll haunt us with it. Whenever I've had light, you can't get away from it. God's got a hook in us. We can't get away from it. When I was far from God and in my early 20s, I'd lay in bed, couldn't sleep, which God's often in that. But in my case, old, old hymns would come to me. Couldn't get them out of my head. And I would lay there on, with my head on my pillow and old invitational hymns, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. One that used to really bother me, almost persuaded. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Do not pass me by. Don't leave me. Don't leave me in this stupid mess that I'm in of my own making. And I... Laying on my back, I'd, tears would come to my eyes and run on, down into my ears. For a long time, I shut it off. I resisted it. But the, so I say this. The, B, the VBS songs, the lessons we teach to our kids back here, sermons we've heard, scenes we've seen God brings them back to us it that's one reason why repetition is profitable frankly the most repetitious boring repeat himself all the time person in the universe is God he just he and he says I already know you know this but I'm gonna say it again he knows how thick our heads are but he also knows that he's planting something that maybe years down the road he can tug at it. He can't get away from it. So he says, look for the old paths. Remember former days when your heart was tender and you were closer to God. Remember that. Seven, three, we're nearly done. The seventh chapter, <clears throat> the third <clears throat> verse, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. I won't carry you off to Babylon. I'll leave you in your home country where you love it if you amend your ways. And then finally, this is a wonderful several verses in the ninth <clears throat> chapter, 23rd verse. Thus says the Lord, 
Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. <clears throat> Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. There's the cure for whatever's not right, disjointed in our hearts. Don't glory in the earthly things we may have and accomplish with accomplishments we may have that in the end mean nothing. Nothing. Yesterday I was <clears throat> looking at TV screen while I was eating and they're talking about the startup of college football NFL and they were showing the some of the preseason games and talking about the statistics of everybody and so and so is five times this and four times that and led here and did this and you know I, and I sat there and I thought I, I love football I love this time of the year love the sports that's God doesn't have a problem with that but I thought you stand a judgment the books are opened I led the NFL in sacks. You think that's going to impress God? Does that matter? No. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters except, as he said, that you know me and you understand me, who I am. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> In your own way, every one of you here have to deal with God, God alone, and His faithfulness to you. And I know He's faithful. He talks to us all the time. If we're not where we should be, if we're behind light, if there's some things we know we should be doing, we aren't, some seeking of the Lord and confessing that we haven't yet met, haven't yet done we better do it because that's all that matters Father in heaven thank you in the name of Jesus for your grace, and for your mercy. We are so grateful for it, Lord. But I pray after we heard what we heard this morning and we look at the landscape of our land and the landscape of our own hearts, I pray, Father, that we have a deep desire not to take that grace and mercy for granted, that today we do business with you of what needs to be done and quit putting off the things that you've been talking to us about and get it cleaned up. Help those that are in that spot 
as our pastor just said, behind light. Maybe they don't even know you yet. Today is the day of salvation for them. No more delay. No more putting it off till tomorrow what could be done today and what should be done today. Help that person in here or is it listening to my voice on a video? Help them to make that decision by your grace and by your mercy today. And there may be those in this sanctuary this morning, Lord, or listening that have walked well with you at one time, but have lost their way. It is time for them to repent and come back to the one that they've known, to come back to you, to surrender to you again, to ask you to forgive them and continue to walk well with you. And for those that might be walking well with you, Lord, in this season of their life, may they never take that for granted. That is by your grace and by your mercy that we walk well with you. We don't do that in our own strength. We do that by surrendering our lives completely to you. So no matter what state we're in, sitting in this sanctuary or listening online today, Lord, I pray for each individual that we let you do the work that needs to be done, either for the first time or turning back to you or continuing to walk well with you knowing that we love you, knowing that you care for us, and knowing that the most important thing in our lives is to know you and to be known by you. Pray that for each individual today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.